Hey there, kindred spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hello, kindred spirits. Okay, so before we jump headlong into today's episode, we need to briefly turn this into a fourth-wing podcast. (laughs) That's right. We both recently read the runaway bestseller Fourth Wing, which is a new adult fantasy book by Rebecca Yeros. It's set at a military college for dragon riders, and it is full of breathtakingly high-stakes action and a smoldering slow-burn romance. I literally just finished this book two days ago and texted Kelly the instant <laughs> I closed it to to talk about it. Yeah, it's one of those kind of books for sure. Now, I'm not sure if I love this book the way I love some of the book series that it reminds me of. Like it kind of feels like The Hunger Games. It kind of feels like the Scholomance trilogy, which is another series that Reagan and I both love. But I was thoroughly entertained for the entire book, totally absorbed by it. I was so like viscerally concerned for Violet, our bookish main character, who is more or less thrown into a war college that is extremely physically dangerous and cutthroat when all poor Violet wants to do is go to the scribe college where she can like read and write and learn language languages and history. (laughs) And I just kept thinking, like, what if someone made me go to sports college and everyone at sports college was mean all the time? (laughs) I would not have been prepared. I would not have been able to handle it. But Violet's tenacity and intelligence is rewarded. There are some incredibly adorable and hilarious dragons and a few dashing and dangerous love interests as well. The book ends with a plot twist that made me want to start it over from scratch and reread knowing the story would change with that new information. Those are my favorite kind of books sometimes, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people are comparing this to the A Court of Thorns and Roses series, which I see it because this is also like a new adult romanticy is what they're calling it. And there's political intrigue and like some kind of like steamy romantic tension. But to be honest, it really reminded me much more of the Temeraire books. Those books begin with His Majesty's Dragon and they're written by Naomi Novik. Mm-hmm. That series is a major favorite of both of ours. And if you also read Fourth Wing and you want more hilarious dragon interactions with that side order of military might, you definitely want to read the whole Temeraire series. Yes, for sure. I definitely thought about Temeraire when I was reading this. Just the way the dragons talk, right? Oh, it reminds yes. me so much of like the Temeraire dragons. Yes, yes. So Reagan, what'd you think? Well, first of all, I just want to hard agree with everything you just said. I haven't read A Court of Thorn and Roses yet, so I can't speak to that comparison. But I definitely got the Hunger Games comparison and the Scholomance comparison mm-hmm. and the Temeraire books. <laughs> so there's that ruthless competition for survival. We've got a magical academic setting. I think the world is really well built and so is gradually revealing more and more of itself. And, you know, we've got dragons. I mean, dragons. Really fun dragons. Really fun dragons with personalities. I like that the dragons choose their riders, although I do have questions about what the dragon's criteria is for choosing their riders, because to be honest, I have some concerns. I will say Rebecca Yaros's writing is fine. Like it gets the job done. It's not I'm with you. It's fine. Beautiful. It's just fine for me. Yeah. yeah. Like one of the things I love about the Scholomance books is that some of the writing is so evocative. 
No, Naomi Novik is a phenomenal writer. I mean, I, there's so little she can't do. Yeah, Rebecca Yaros is writing this book is pretty utilitarian. Yeah, I've already pre-ordered the second one, which comes out in November. Natch. My one concern is that sometimes series that start really strong and have a lot of hype around it and quickly build a fan base is that sometimes they, they just kind of fall apart in later books, mm-hmm. whether the author kind of has a great premise, but hasn't fleshed it all the way out. And so it starts to fall apart or with all of the hype, they're pressured to write faster and to turn books out faster or to draw things out longer. If this is going to be a five book series, has she really plotted out five full books? Or That's a lot of books. That's almost the whole Harry Potter series. Do you have five books worth of plot? Right. Or is this really a three book series, but they want you to write five books, which means like books three and four are going to be stretched. Yeah. We don't know, right? I mean, time will tell. Stay tuned. Obviously, when book two comes out, we will update you guys about (laughs) We'll we'll go back to the the podcast within a podcast about fourth wing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Anyway, let's get back to our book. (laughs) The reason we're here. Right. So last episode, we recapped Anne of Windy Poplars, an Anne book that many, many Anne fans struggle with. We think that there is still a lot to appreciate with this one. And over the next few episodes, we're going to unravel the threads of this book that make it special, as well as discuss some of the elements that we don't love quite so much. So for today, we are going to be talking about the parent-child relationships in Anne of Windy Poplars. Our most consistent listeners know that this season, we've really been focusing our thematic discussions around Anne's three core values that she says right at the very beginning of Anne of Green Gables, which is trying to develop to be angelically good, divinely beautiful, and dazzlingly clever. So today's discussion is not entirely a departure from these themes, but we're going to kind of focus this idea of angelic goodness around uh, the way she observes so many different types of parent-child relationships in Summerside. In looking at some of these relationships in the book, we can't help but feel that Anne must have been thinking about the kind of mother she would one day become and that she's learning a lot about what makes a good parent or rather having some experiences that might teach her about what not to do as a parent. So that's going to be kind of the specific way we are framing goodness in this episode. But let's move right in to our kindred spirit of the episode. So of all the children in this book, the one who most likely influenced Anne's developing parenting style is Elizabeth Grayson, the little girl who lives next door to Wendy Poplars. Anne always calls her Little Elizabeth, a sign of how much she adores the child and how close she feels to her. Elizabeth is a kindred spirit in the truest, most Anne-ish way. Like Paul Irving or Miss Lavender, Elizabeth is a person who believes earnestly in fairy tales and imagination. Much like young Anne herself, Elizabeth uses her imagination to help her escape her dreary life with her grandmother and grandmother's companion, who make Elizabeth feel so unwanted and so alone. We just adore Elizabeth, who daydreams about tomorrow as a real place where all her dreams have come true. She tells Anne that in tomorrow, she will have a million dogs and 44 cats, which I would also like to have. (laughs) 
Elizabeth's tomorrow reminds me a lot about the last time I visited my little nephew, who's seven. And he kept telling me, when I'm 18, I'm going to do this. And when I'm 18, I'm going to do that. And it reminded me very much of, of this character. He's old enough to understand that for now he has to be good and do what his parents say. But when he's 18, well, it'll be a whole new day. Watch out, world. For our quote of the episode, we are so charmed by Elizabeth's concept of tomorrow as a real place. We're going to pull this little quote in which Anne is writing to Gilbert about it. Anne writes, we stood there and talked while Elizabeth sipped her milk daintily and she told me all about tomorrow. The woman had told her that tomorrow never comes. But Elizabeth knows better. It will come sometime. Some beautiful morning, she will just wake up and find it is tomorrow. Not today, but tomorrow. And then things will happen. Wonderful things. She may even have a day to do exactly as she likes in, with nobody watching her. Perhaps the island of happiness is there. Elizabeth feels sure there is an island of happiness somewhere, where all the ships that never come back are anchored, and she will find it when tomorrow comes. Moving into this episode's story club, one of the interesting things about Anne of Windy Poplars is the way that it's situated in this liminal period of Anne's life. Anne's romantic story arc has mostly resolved with her engagement to Gilbert, but she's not yet married. When she takes the job at Summerside High School, she's a young adult, educated with a college degree, and engaged to be married. All of that allows her to live independently in this world that generally places a lot of restrictions on women. Anne has freedom of movement and time that married women with children do not have, but she's also free from the pressures of courtship or trying to catch a man. She can go places unchaperoned. In fact, she can act as the chaperone. And she's also seen as a source of wisdom and good sense, not just because of her education, but also due to her status as an engaged woman. So she's really in this unique and privileged place, especially for a woman of her time. And from that singular perspective, Anne has the opportunity in this book to observe a lot of parent-child relationship dynamics as an outside observer. We have to remember that Anne herself was not traditionally parented, and it would make sense that at this time of her life with her own marriage on the horizon, she would be thinking about herself as a wife and mother and what it might look like for her. In Anne's first 11 years of life, she was a quasi-foster child, quasi-indentured servant. She wasn't raised in an intentional way, much less in a thoughtful or loving way. When Anne came to Green Gables, Marilla accepted the responsibility to bring her up, and certainly Anne had more care and concern shown over her welfare and with regards to the young adult she was growing to be from that point on. But by the time she was 16, Anne and Marilla had more of an equal relationship. Both were contributing to the household and leaning on each other to do the work around Green Gables and with raising the twins. So even though Marilla and Matthew provided Anne with a lot of kindness and care, they also didn't have a traditional parent-child bond with her. By the time Anne moves to Summerside, she's an adult who mostly raised herself. In Windy Poplars, Anne sees lots of examples of the parent-child relationship, some between adult children and their parents, some involving younger children and their parents. But honestly, most of these relationships that she's watching and or meddling in seem to be good examples of how not to parent. We would argue that all of these little interactions that she's watching are giving her information to take in as she prepares to eventually become a parent herself. So let's explore what Anne is learning from the various parents in Windy Poplars. So let's meet. Mrs. Adoniram Gibson. What a name. Seriously. Listeners, if I butchered it, let me know. I have no idea. But Mrs. Gibson and her daughter, Pauline Gibson, are acquaintances of Marilla's. Marilla instructs Anne to look them up in Summerside. Anne does so and finds herself returning to visit weekly because Pauline enjoys Anne's visits and Anne feels sorry for Pauline. The reason Anne feels sorry for Pauline is because Mrs. Gibson is... 
In Anne's own words, a terrible old woman. Anne tells Gilbert that Pauline waits on her mother hand and foot. And although Mrs. Gibson cannot walk, she can certainly talk. And she criticizes Pauline relentlessly. She will not allow Pauline to do anything without her express approval. Mrs. Gibson holds herself and Pauline to exceptionally high, even unreasonably high, standards of behavior. And as a result, she does not permit Pauline to do much at all. Anne observes that Mrs. Gibson and Pauline are comfortably well off and Pauline could have a very nice life in Summerside, attending the ladies' aid and missionary societies or planning church suppers and welcome socials. But Mrs. Gibson is so controlling, she will not let Pauline leave the house very often, even to go to church. Seems like Pauline is essentially trapped by her mother. Yeah, she's like jailed practically. Honestly. Mrs. Gibson is also just an unpleasant, cranky sort of person who asks a lot of Pauline. By the way, Mrs. Gibson has 10 children total. All of the... faults of Pauline? She has 10 kids. Where are the other ones? Oh, they got married and left. Yeah, they went far, far away. They were like, we are not dealing with this. They do not want Mrs. Gibson in their homes. Unclear exactly why it is that Pauline drew the short straw. So Pauline is responsible for all of the housekeeping duties, while Mrs. Gibson complains about the drafts and the strange noises in the yard and constantly requires Pauline to massage her back and legs, administer medications, fluff her pillows, and wait on her hand and foot. Pauline can't even sleep through the night because Mrs. Gibson gets her sleep by napping in the afternoon and spends nighttime coming up with all sorts of tasks for Pauline to do. She's an absolute tyrant. And Mrs. Gibson is definitely a no one understands how much I suffer kind of person. Mm-hmm. And look, of course, older people with disabilities deserve compassionate care. No one and is of, saying otherwise. <laughs> and of course, it's very difficult to not feel as active as one used to be. But Mrs. Gibson is also so unkind and ungrateful. She lords power and influence over Pauline such that Pauline feels she cannot do anything without her mother's permission, whether it's buy a pair of new stockings because Mrs. Gibson will not allow it until the old ones have been mended a certain number of times, or attend her cousin Louise's silver wedding celebration. A silver wedding celebration is a 25th anniversary party. It's important to Pauline that she go, especially because she was Louise's bridesmaid, and Mrs. Gibson has forbidden it. What's worse is she's manipulating Pauline with guilt, saying, Pauline wants to go and leave me, Miss Shirley, nice grateful daughter I've got. I hate this. I wish she would just say what she means, because Truly, there would be nothing wrong with Mrs. Gibson saying, you know what, Pauline, I feel nervous or I feel lonely or unsafe when you aren't home with me and I wish you wouldn't go. But if you do go, like, can we make arrangements for someone to stay with me? I mean, be reasonable. Like, how hard is it to be honest and forthright and not turn the tables on your daughter? Well, but this is the same woman who used similar guilt tactics to convince Pauline not to get married years before. Anne tells Gilbert, I knew Pauline's battle was lost the moment Mrs. Gibson left the decision to go to the party to her conscience. Mrs. Gibson has got her way all her life by leaving things to people's consciences. I've heard that years ago, somebody wanted to marry Pauline and Mrs. Gibson prevented it by leaving it to her conscience. I can just hear her say it too. Oh, well, go off and get married if that's what you want, but I'll be left here all alone. I'll leave that to your conscience. Right? She's so passive aggressive. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Because she doesn't want to think of herself as a person who tells people People what what to to do. do. Mm -hmm. I just leave it to your conscience. If you want it on your conscience that I die alone. With no one to look after me and the drafts and the weird noises in the night. I can't. I really can't with her. 
Now, because this is Anne of Windy Poplars and not adult children of emotionally immature parents, a book you absolutely need to read, by the way, if any of the parents we talk about today remind you of your parents or caregivers, this whole thing is played for humor. Later on, Mrs. Gibson is berating Pauline for sewing a collarless dress. And when Anne defends Pauline, saying, well, actually, collarless dresses are in fashion right now, Mrs. Gibson looks right at Anne and tells her that collarless dresses are indecent, while fashionable Anne, of course, is wearing a collarless dress. So it is kind of supposed to be funny, but I mean, she's just so cruel all the time. And then there's this moment, also kind of fun, where Mrs. Gibson goes on an absolute tirade about a man who always kissed his wife in the most unsuitable places. And, you know, Anne finds the the double meaning and the humor here and asks in her letter to Gilbert if he thinks that kissing her on the nape of the neck is an unsuitable place. But it turns out, of course, that Mrs. Gibson meant that kissing on the steps of the church is unsuitable. So I, I love that little moment of flirtation in the letter between Anne and Gilbert, but it also just goes to show the total silliness of Mrs. Gibson and her opinions. Anne decides that Pauline must be allowed to attend her cousin's anniversary party, and she offers to stay with Mrs. Gibson while Pauline goes, even giving up a weekend at Green Gables to do so. She sets about convincing Mrs. Gibson using every weapon in her arsenal, from people will talk if Pauline doesn't go, to I'll take such good care of you, you won't even know she's gone. Mrs. Gibson is a formidable foe, even against someone as convincing as Anne. She suggests that Pauline might get mumps if she goes. She says that Pauline, like all young people, has no sense and will come to harm, and that she could die at any moment. Finally, Anne says, Pauline deserves a day off. And something about that clicks for Mrs. Gibson, who finally acquiesces and lets Pauline go to the party. Reagan, what do you think was the thing that changed Mrs. Gibson's mind? Well, I think Anne is cannily countering any possible argument that Mrs. Gibson is giving. And so Mrs. Gibson is either going to have to come right out and say she doesn't want Pauline to go to the party. She's going to have Mm -hmm. to expressly forbid it or she's going to have to give in. And I think that's what does it. She's reached the end of her passive-aggressive guilt trip toolbox, and Mm -hmm. she knows she can't flat out say, no, Pauline can't go, I won't let her, because that's a step too far in her control. She obviously thinks of herself as someone who doesn't have any needs and doesn't ask anything of anybody. She says as much all the time. Right. So she can't outright say, no, Pauline can't go. So she wants this veneer of just being benevolent and concerned. And that's only going to get you so far with Anne just cheerfully countering every excuse Mrs. Gibson comes up with, with a sweet smile on her face. Mm -hmm. I mean, the mumps one was really stretching. I will say that. (laughs) It was. Pauline's like, mom, I've had mumps. And she's like, well, some people get mumps twice. (laughs) It's so absurd. So Anne's day of babysitting Mrs. Gibson while Pauline goes to the party is predictably terrible, but Anne is able to work some of that Anne magic and she makes the best of a bad business. The moment Anne arrives, Mrs. Gibson accusing Anne of walking as if she owned the earth, simply because Anne arrives looking pretty and is in a good mood. Anne laughs it off and then Mrs. Gibson turns her daggers to Pauline, asking if she wouldn't rather look like a fresh young thing like Miss Shirley. She is so cruel, I can hardly hardly stand it. Anne has another gift for Pauline. She has brought over a pretty dress for Pauline to wear to the party, since Mrs. Gibson, of course, would not consent to a new dress. Pauline wears it underneath her old dress, having to sneak it past her mother. This woman is 45. I just 
let that sink in. She's not like a teenager going out wearing like a racy mini skirt. Mrs. Gibson taunts Pauline on her way out about wearing makeup and perfume. Pauline, of course, is wearing no makeup and very little perfume and implies that people will think Pauline is not decent. Again, just why would you say these things to your kid? So Pauline finally escapes, leaving Anne with Mrs. Gibson. I just truly I can't with Mrs. Gibson. She's so awful to Pauline. And you know what's even awfuler is that Anne shares with Gilbert that Pauline has said that, oh, Mrs. Gibson likes Anne and she's nicer to Pauline when Anne is there. Yes. What is she saying when Anne isn't there if this is what she's saying in front of Anne? It's wild to think about. No, truly. I mean, she's like basically accusing her daughter of like going out looking like a harlot. You know, I just anyway. Pauline leaves. Hopefully she has a good time. (laughs) And Mrs. Gibson instantly sets Anne to work with trivial tasks like adjusting the blinds to the precisely right spot and moving table lamps infinitesimal inches to one side or the other. Anne decides that she's going to convince Mrs. Gibson to sit on the porch for a while. And as an inducement, she says, you know, we can watch the passersby and criticize them. And this makes sense to me, right? She's thinking, well, you know, Mrs. Gibson's such an old crank. She'll love that. We can gossip together. Great. Yes, we can gossip together. Mrs. Gibson replies, I don't hold with criticizing people, said Mrs. Gibson virtuously. It ain't Christian. Would you mind telling me if that is all your own hair? Every bit, laughed Anne. Pity it's red. (laughs) I'm glad that Anne can see the humor of all this, but it's really infuriating her hypocrisy, especially seeing how she's worn her own daughter down for years and years with these ugly little remarks. Anne makes tea and lunch for Mrs. Gibson, which Mrs. Gibson proclaims to be satisfactory, crediting Marilla with Anne's proper upbringing, of course. Mrs. Gibson is really obsessed with people's mothers. She attributes every trait in other people as a fixed and immovable trait, and it's always attributed to their mother's people, right? Like, oh, that makes sense. Her mother was a tackberry. She's really obsessed with people's mothers. That tracks, though, with how she treats Pauline, right? All children are direct reflections of their mothers, and of course she's going to want to control Pauline to the extent that she does. Ooh, that's good. Well done. I didn't make that connection until just now. But anyway, later in the day, Mrs. Gibson's mood takes a turn. Oh, she was in a good mood before, you guys. Anne made a good tea, so she was happy. And she sat on the front porch, and they did criticize the the passersby. It was great. She was somewhat cheerful, but she wakes up. She's grumpy. She she takes a turn for the worse. (laughs) She takes a turn for the worse. She's so awful, you guys. She spends the rest of the evening complaining about everything, from the temperature of the tea, to Pauline's dog, to the drafts in the house, to her aches and pains. When Anne suggests that she help Mrs. Gibson get ready for bed, Mrs. Gibson remarks if Anne wants to leave so badly, she may as well just go and leave Mrs. Gibson to just die, of course. Oh my god. Anne is about at the end of her tether, and Pauline finally gets home late, flushed and starry-eyed from all of her fun at the party. The bride has sent her bouquet of 25 white roses as gifts for Mrs. Gibson. But the best part about it, Pauline presents her with this enormous bouquet that Louisa has sent her. 25 roses, yes. 25 white roses, beautiful. And all Mrs. Gibson says, I suppose nobody thought to send me a piece of cake. And she's like, oh, but they did, Ma. I have it right here. And she's all like, "Mm, well, took you long enough to tell me. It's ridiculous. So Pauline tells Anne and Mrs. Gibson all about her fun day. And Mrs. Gibson has not a kind word to say about it at all. But Pauline's enjoyment is no less diminished. Thank goodness. Poor Pauline. 
As Anne heads out, she tells Pauline that she wishes Pauline did not have such a hard time at home. I mean, Anne spent one day with Mrs. Gibson. And she was done. She was done. She's She's like, I can handle anyone for one day. And she was like, oh, no. Pauline says, oh, she won't mind it so much now that she's had such a beautiful day out. And she tells Anne... It's nice to be needed. It's so unhealthy. It's really hard for me to see the humor in this part of the book, even though I know that Maud means for this to be like kind of a droll, funny story about like an old crank. Because, you know, what's really happening here is Pauline's relationship with her mother is isolating her and causing her so much pain. It's truly painful to read. I mean, if this was a romantic relationship, this is clearly abusive, right? Clearly. Mrs. Gibson never says anything even mildly kind at all to Pauline, even Mm. anything neutral. I can't help thinking that growing up with a mother who treated her like this must have just wrecked any self-worth Pauline might have had. And because that's her mother, it's even easier for Pauline to feel like she has to put up with it, even if she objectively knows that her mother is mean. I know when she says to Anne at the end, well, it's nice to be needed. I mean, my heart just shattered for her. It's like, you know, she's never getting out of this horrible situation. So this book has another parent-child relationship where the people involved are similarly isolated and sort of orbiting around each other. And that is of Mr. Armstrong and his young son, Teddy, who he calls the little fellow. This is the really sweet and sad story that begins when Anne and Lewis Allen, one of her students, are canvassing the neighborhood for subscriptions to the high school's dramatic club. Okay, sidebar. It seems like being a part of any community in this time period involves so much canvassing, doesn't it? It really does. I don't know whether... (laughs) Maud is using that as kind of a way to get Anne out and about and meeting a whole Maybe. bunch of mm-hmm. people, but there isn't a lot of door-to-door stuff going on. Truly. In Anne well, of Avonlea, they're always going door-to-door asking for money for an AVIS project, and then that seems to be a shared theme in this book, too. But on the other hand, how else are you going to do it? I mean, it's not like they can put a post on next door Avonlea saying, hey, we're taking up collections for, like... Yeah, Venmo, uh, Venmo and here. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I guess what else are you going to do? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> this is, yeah, canvassing the, the 1890s next door. <laughs> well, and predictably, like next door. Yep. Full of cranks. <laughs> full of cranks and weirdos. Oh, boy. (laughs) So at any rate, Anne and Lewis are walking around town. And Lewis is also looking for photography subjects since he is an amateur photographer and hopes to take some kind of photography prize. I do think that Maude might be playing a touch fast and loose with her timelines here since commercially available cameras and film were not really in widespread use until well into the 1890s. And I think if we're tracking Anne's timeline, that Anne is in Summerside from September 1888 to May 1891. But Whatever. Somehow this 16-year-old has like a super rare and expensive camera. Like, details. Lewis and Anne arrive at a seemingly deserted farmhouse on a lonely road and decide to give it a shot. Answering the door is a thoroughly unpleasant man who tells them in no uncertain terms that he is not interested, then slams the door in their faces. Anne and Lewis turn to go, and on their way out, they encounter a young boy, about eight years old, and the boy's giant black dog. The boy is described as looking prince-like, refined and almost cherubic, despite wearing simple clothes befitting the son of a farmer. The boy shares a pastry with Anne and Lewis, explaining that his father made it for him, but that he wants them to have it. The boy introduces himself as Teddy Armstrong, and he tells Anne and Lewis that he lives alone with his father, the brusque farmer, since his mother died, but that his father takes good care of him and is a good cook. Teddy doesn't go to school and seems totally isolated on the farm with his father. 
Lewis takes a photo of Teddy and the dog, and Anne and Lewis leave, having been thoroughly charmed by the sweet little boy. Rebecca Dew later tells Anne that Mr. Armstrong never got over his wife's death five years before. He keeps his son at home and will not let anyone in their lives, not even a housekeeper, and he will not take the boy anywhere, not even to church or school. Aunt Kate tells Anne that Mr. Armstrong worships the boy. There's a fair amount of religious symbolism in this chapter, as well as some symbolic foreshadowing in the way that Teddy is described. He's given this almost angelic, beatific description, but then that's in contrast with his big black dog, which is traditionally a symbol of death. So you can definitely see Maud's flair for the gothic seeping in here. And I think, predictably, that's one of the reasons that this is one of my favorite vignettes in Windy Poplars. Three weeks later, Lewis develops his photos, and Anne and Lewis decide to bring the picture of Teddy to him directly. It's a beautiful picture, and Teddy is described as looking as real as life. Anne also notices that Teddy looks a little like Lewis and points out the similarity. On their way to the Armstrongs' farm, Anne and Lewis run into a couple who inform them that Teddy has died and that Mr. Armstrong is inconsolable. Shocked and heartbroken, Anne and Lewis continue on, knowing that they have to make sure that Mr. Armstrong has this picture of his sweet son. When Mr. Armstrong answers the door this time, he seems tired and haggard and apologizes for his rudeness, knowing that Anne and Lewis had been kind to Teddy in life. They give him the picture and the poor man just plain loses it. He didn't have a photo of Teddy and was afraid he was forgetting what his son looked like. Mr. Armstrong tells Anne and Lewis that they've saved his life. Before they go, Lewis brings up the resemblance between himself and Teddy, and Mr. Armstrong asks Lewis where his folks are from. It turns out that Lewis is the son of Mr. Armstrong's half-sister, Small World. The next week, Mr. Armstrong invites Lewis to come live with him, since they are both alone in the world, and Lewis agrees. I think there's less of an obviously dysfunctional dynamic here. It's clear that Mr. Armstrong loves Teddy very much, and Teddy feels very loved and cared for, but Mr. Armstrong is so mired in his grief that he kept Teddy away from the whole world, and he worshipped Teddy to the exclusion of any other social connection. As Aunt Chatty said to Anne, it's no way to bring up a child. This is such a sad story. The loss of a child is just one of the deepest griefs there is. But it's extra sad because Mr. Armstrong has absolutely nothing left in his life without Teddy. And so it is extremely lucky that Lewis ends up being his nephew because you can see that while Lewis won't ever replace Teddy and shouldn't, everyone needs someone to love. And this will give Mr. Armstrong a connection to invest in, a reason to keep moving forward. On the opposite end, of the cruel cutting Mrs. Gibson is the sweet, indulgent Mrs. Raymond, the mother of the twins, Gerald and Geraldine. I swear, Reagan, Maud just cannot let an Anne book pass by without adding twins in some way. Anne offers to look after Mrs. Raymond's children while she goes to Charlottetown for a funeral. Rebecca Dew warns Anne that Mrs. Raymond's kids are holy terrors because Mrs. Raymond doesn't believe in punishing children. Anne hears from Rebecca Dew that the minister's wife reported that they threw onions at her. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. And Mrs. Raymond even says when Anne arrives that Miss Prouty from up the street won't stay with them anymore. She says, you know, Miss Prouty just doesn't understand children. Oh, of course but not. You can read between the lines that I have a feeling Mrs. Raymond has burned through any other goodwill from anybody else who wants to watch her kids. So Reagan... About Mrs. Raymond not believing in punishing children, this is where I think I went right in not having kids. Because honestly, like Mrs. Raymond, I also kind of don't believe in punishing children. 
Like, I understand in a theoretical sense that children do need boundaries, but most actual childhood punishments, especially the ones that proliferated in this era, just seem totally inappropriate and disproportional to the kind of mischief that children would typically get into. I don't know. I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. Like, okay, so a child doesn't obey some rule you've set. So your recourse is to yell at them? Yell? I would never yell at another person, ever. It's humiliating and it's unkind and it's scary and children are vulnerable. And that power dynamic between parent and child is so unbalanced. Or like punishing a child by sending them to their room, that also bothers me because then they're sitting there feeling isolated and unloved and alone and like they aren't welcome members of their own families. Like what in the world could a child possibly do that would warrant making them feel like that? And don't even get me started on spankings. Like seriously, Reagan, I don't think I could punish a child. I am actually Mrs. Raymond. (laughs) And she even says, but I think loving is better than spanking any day. Don't you, Miss Shirley? And like, who disagrees with that? Okay. Okay, so I have much to say. We will come back to it. But I'll say right here that Mrs. Raymond has just set up a totally false dichotomy right there. Mm. I also don't think that kids should be spanked and yelled at. But I do think parents have a responsibility to set clear expectations for their kids. They have to actively teach kids how to exist in the world, how to develop self-control, how to interact with other people, and they need to allow kids to learn consequences from their actions. We also know now, and we maybe didn't have the language to describe it back then or to you know distinguish this difference, is there is a difference between punishment and consequences. Sure, that makes sense. Punishment is disproportional. Punishment is meant to hurt. Punishment Mm. is done out of anger, right? Like I'm angry at you, so I want to make you feel bad in some way, right? Consequences are about teaching. The point of a consequence is to help your child learn. You made a choice. As a result of your choice, this thing is now happening. Right. And providing consequences and setting boundaries are not removing love and warmth from your kids, no matter what they tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, there's a world of parenting between spanking a child and not doing anything when your kid does something wrong. Sure. So it's not like there's only two choices, either horrible, strict, repressive Mrs. Gibson or indulgent, permissive Mrs. Raymond. Like there is a lot between there. That's like the active and exhausting work of parenting. So going back to the Raymond twins, Anne arrives. And after Mrs. Raymond tells her that they are absolute angels who will be no trouble whatsoever, Anne finds Geraldine trying to throw her brother out the window for the crime of sticking his tongue out at her. (laughs) Off to a roaring good start. (laughs) It's literally the first thing that happens. (laughs) Anne attempts to redirect them to the lawn for games, only to be sidelined herself by a door-to-door saleswoman, Miss Drake, who persistently tries to get Anne to buy a set of encyclopedias. Anne is tempted to spend $6 on the set just to make Miss Drake leave. (laughs) And now that is an experience that I think we've all had at some time or another. I think in this situation, I would 100% be Anne about to pay an exorbitant amount of money just to make someone go away. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Anne is saved, though, by the naughty twins, who are using a fishing pole to pick up Miss Drake's hat and end up taking the woman's wig and spectacles, too. (laughs) It's such a hilarious moment to picture. Miss Drake, of course, is horrified and embarrassed, and she runs off. And Anne is momentarily grateful for the twins' mischief. She issues a mild rebuke to Gerald, who responds with, gee, I'm some fisherman, ain't I? So, not particularly remorseful. (laughs) 
They all sit down to lunch and the twins end up helping Anne out with the dishes. And so Anne reflects that all children need is a little firmness. We will see that those are famous last words. After lunch, a school trustee comes by to talk to Anne, and Anne instructs the twins to play nicely in the backyard. So the twins promise to be good, and Maud tells us that they would have been had not Ivy Trent stopped by. Now, Ivy Trent is a neighbor girl who the twins hate, apparently because she always looks like she just stepped out of a bandbox, which I take to mean that she is always, you know, neat and put together and well-dressed. And Ivy comes over to show off her fine feathers, new boots, and a sash and bow, of scarlet ribbon. Now, Mrs. Raymond's twins are always dressed very simply. The text is split as to whether this is evidence of her being a sensible parent or simply because she would rather spend money on her own clothes than spend money on her children's. Okay, which, by the way, (laughs) Mrs. Raymond apologist that I am, I also think this is a sound strategy. Why would you spend your money on your kids' clothes when they're going to grow out of them? Meanwhile, I know that I will enjoy my clothes for years at a time. And honestly, I have no problem with that either. Since Geraldine has never had these kinds of beautiful clothes that Ivy Trent often has, Geraldine is intensely jealous of this neighbor girl. Geraldine begins taunting Ivy by repeating everything she says, that old chestnut. And when Ivy tries to change the subject by telling Gerald that she wants him to be her beau, Gerald threatens to dunk Ivy in a rain barrel, push her face into a hill of ants, and rip off Ivy's ribbons and bows. Now that they're thoroughly worked up, the twins make good on that last threat, tearing Ivy's clothes, painting her legs with red and green stripes, and putting burrs in Ivy's hair. It's so mean. That poor kid. Ivy runs home, and the twins clean up all the evidence of their misdeeds before Anne is done with her meeting. As soon as the school trustee leaves, a justly aggrieved Mrs. Trent comes to see Mrs. Raymond. Anne explains that Mrs. Raymond is out of town and that she is to blame for the twins' behavior. Mrs. Trent will not let Anne take responsibility, saying that she well knows that Mrs. Raymond lets her children get away with anything. This conversation is interrupted by the twins, who are fighting like cats and dogs and shrieking while attacking each other. I think the text even said like they're like biting and writhing. (laughs) I was like, yeah, (laughs) like they are no holds barred trying to hurt each other. Yes, I pictured like an old cartoon where like the characters are just like a scribble. (laughs) Right. They're just rolling over and over again with like the dust flying. I'm pretty sure that's what's happening here. So Anne separates the twins and sends Geraldine to bed. And she sends Gerald to the hall closet for the next two hours, telling them that they have behaved very badly and must be punished. Softy Anne relents after about an hour and goes to get Gerald from the hall closet, only to discover that he has left through the hall closet window. Anne rushes around, checking the woodshed, the street, the back garden, and finally a little wooded area near a neighbor's house where she finds Gerald in a pond on a flat, pulling himself around. (laughs) This kid is just made of mischief. (laughs) Geraldine, wearing only a nightgown, was hot on Anne's heels, running after her to find her brother. When Anne and Geraldine made it to the pond, Gerald somehow manages to like flip himself off the flat and then Geraldine ran into the pond possibly to save him it's unclear this is all very chaotic so now both twins are in the pond soaking wet and somehow they have the audacity to accuse Anne of not taking proper care of them Anne brings the kids back to the house out of an abundance of caution she calls the doctor on the off chance that one of them could have gotten sick from the pond escapade after the doctor leaves he happens to pass by Mrs. Raymond at the train station and he tells her all about it so Mrs. Raymond arrives home in high dudgeon totally put out at Anne for her negligence saying that as a teacher she thought Anne should have a little more authority over children Anne leaves exhausted obviously and arrives back at Windy Poplar's where Rebecca Dew makes her a nice supper and manages not to say I told you so 
Reagan, what do we make of the indulgent Mrs. Raymond? Are these children mischievous because she's let them run rampant without any rules or boundaries? Or does she just have like naturally naughty children? Okay, this is a good question. And we will definitely get into it more in the Birch Path because I have sort of a framework for talking about it. Okay. But I will say, I think this is a very bad fit because everybody arrives in this world with their own personality. So if you've got some kids that are boundary pushers, adventure seekers, Mm -hmm. challengers in so many ways, and you pair them with a very excessively indulgent parent who never sets any limits or works with them on learning self-control, that is a not great combination. Imagine if instead Mrs. Raymond's kids had been like Dora of Davy and Dora fame, right? That would probably work out great. Right. Like Dora is entirely Mm self-governing. She would be fine. Like she would just soak up all the love and attention and it would be great for her. But obviously these two, this is not a great parenting fit. Anyway. All right, one more parent-child relationship for us to talk about. And that brings us back to little Elizabeth Grayson and her father, Mr. Grayson. So there are echoes here of Mr. Armstrong and his little fellow, Teddy. But where Mr. Armstrong dealt with his grief of losing his wife by holding Teddy far too close, Mr. Grayson dealt with his grief about losing Elizabeth's mother by sending Elizabeth away. Elizabeth lives next door to Wendy Poplar's at a house called the Evergreens with her great-grandmother, Mrs. Campbell. Mrs. Campbell is attended by a companion whom Elizabeth calls The Woman, capital T, capital W, which I think tells us a lot about how foreboding she is to Elizabeth. Every night, Elizabeth goes to the gate at Wendy Poplar's for a fresh glass of milk from the cow. I guess they don't have a cow at the Evergreens, and nobody else likes milk? This is all kind of just like vague. It's like for some reason, for, yeah, for authorial reason, TBD, this child comes over to Wendy Poplar's every night. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so Anne takes it upon herself to meet Elizabeth at the gate every night with her milk. And like Anne, Elizabeth has a well-developed imagination and Anne loves to hear all about it. Anne describes Elizabeth in a letter to Gilbert as a child undernourished, not in body, but in soul more of a moonbeam than a sunbeam. And as opaque a description as that is, I think we all know exactly what she means. Elizabeth is cared for, but not loved. And as a sensitive child, she feels that lack of love distinctly. Early on, Elizabeth explains to Anne that one day she will find herself in tomorrow, a real place and where all of her dreams will come true. And one way that she will know she is in tomorrow is if she receives a letter from her father. Heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, Reagan. And then come to find out that the woman has told Elizabeth that her father couldn't bear the sight of her. And Elizabeth believes this to her very core. I think what we as adult readers are supposed to understand here is that after Mrs. Grayson died, Mr. Grayson was so distraught that even looking at his baby daughter was a painful reminder of what he had lost. But of course, what Elizabeth hears and what she seems to have incorporated into her understanding of herself is that her father can't bear to be with her. The woman has also told Elizabeth that she must sleep in the dark, which scares her, and that a stuffed crow in the room would pluck out Elizabeth's eyes if she cried. Worst. The woman also scared Elizabeth into believing that she would be kidnapped if she ever talked to strangers. And... It's like, I'm sure these are all things that are like, I don't know, they're like relatively benign. I'm sure you could say these to some kids, but you don't say this kind of things to sensitive, emotional kids like Elizabeth. 
not only that, right, she's sensitive and emotional, but she also doesn't ever get any warm messages, right? Right. right. To balance it out. There's nobody saying we would worry about you because we love you. Nobody's saying I love you. Good night. Just like don't cry or that crow will pick out your eyes. There's no Mm -hmm. balance there. Some of these things that the woman has told Elizabeth, like she's really like internalized, it seems like. And it's torturing her. Anne's heart aches for this little girl, and we, obviously, are right there with her. And although Anne tries to comfort Elizabeth by reminding her that Mrs. Campbell and the woman are elderly and easily irritated, and that they were raised strictly themselves, Anne later tells Gilbert, but I felt that I was not convincing. After all, they don't love her, and she knows it. And here again, we see Anne's kinship with this child. Anne also knows what it's like to be raised by people who don't love you. Mrs. Campbell and the woman are incredibly hard on Elizabeth. They really do not have age-appropriate expectations for her. They forbid her to sing too near the Sabbath. She's not even singing on the Sabbath, whatever your religious. Right? But she's too near the Sabbath on a Saturday evening to sing. And prohibiting Elizabeth from singing at the school concert when she so wants to, simply because it might make children too bold and forward. And obviously, this is not going to be a problem for Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth's problem at all. She's so meek. So this is where Anne decides to step in a little bit because she she can see how Elizabeth is heartbroken. So she manufactures an errand to go to the Evergreens, and she tries to get on Mrs. Campbell's good side by asking to borrow the Reverend James Wallace Campbell's memoir. And then when the subject of the school performance comes up, Mrs. Campbell explains that, of course, she will not allow Elizabeth to participate. And Anne uses a little bit of reverse psychology here, Mm -hmm. and she agrees that, oh yes, Mrs. Campbell is wise because she heard that Mabel Phillips was going to sing. And of course, Elizabeth would not be able to compete with a voice like Mabel Phillips. And so it's much better anyway that she's not put in the position where she's made to feel badly. Sneaky, sneaky. I know. This was calculated because apparently Anne had heard that there was always a competition between the Phillips family and the Campbell family, weirdly in the matter of singing voices. So sure enough, the next thing that Anne hears is that Elizabeth is permitted to sing in the concert. Another plus one for Anne magic. Mm -hmm. One of the other sweet things is that Anne gives Elizabeth a little picture to hang in her room of a little cottage in the woods. And Elizabeth tells her that she looks at it before bed and she imagines that she lives there with her father. What is up with her dad? This poor baby. I know she just wants to know her dad. It breaks my heart. Ugh. In Anne's second summer at Windy Poplars, she finally gets permission to take Elizabeth to Green Gables for two weeks. And that gives her a taste of a warm and loving home, a place where she can run and explore the outdoors and And have fun. Yes, be a kid, have fun. Following that, Anne shares her fears with Gilbert in a letter, explaining that No one is going to see to this child's spiritual and emotional needs after Anne leaves. Mrs. Campbell and the woman will give Elizabeth food and they keep her very nicely dressed and they think that's all she needs. There's a little line in there that implies that Elizabeth's mother had been the apple of Mrs. Campbell's eye and that maybe Mrs. Campbell might blame Elizabeth for her mother's death Mm -hmm. and therefore that being the thing that doesn't allow her to love Elizabeth or something along those lines. It's not deeply explored. It's just sort of thrown out there. But either way, it's tragic. So this is what prompts Anne to meddle in a very direct way that is pretty remarkable. 
she writes to Mr. Grayson. She tracks down his company in Paris to send him a letter, doesn't even know if he'll get it, and tells him in the letter that his daughter longs to know him and that Mrs. Campbell is far too strict with her. She doesn't hear from him for months and months. She worries that the letter either never reached him or fell on deaf ears. So in the second to last chapter of the book, Elizabeth's story comes to a satisfying, if melodramatic, close. Anne takes Elizabeth on a beautiful day out that's going to include an errand to a nearby island named Flying Cloud. I love that. While there, Elizabeth meets a kind man who brings her ice cream and speaks to her in kind of that shared language. While Elizabeth talks about tomorrow, he says that he hopes to return to yesterday. At the end of the errand, Elizabeth and Anne leave the island and somehow as they reach the shore, Elizabeth is run down by a team of runaway horses. (laughs) So this part of the story is told from Elizabeth's point of view. So one minute she's getting out of the boat and the next minute she is knocked unconscious. So yeah, it's it's all a little murky. The next thing we know, Elizabeth wakes up in the room and there's the kind man talking to Anne. And it turns out this is her father. Mr. Grayson had come to Flying Cloud to stay at the home of a business associate. He received Anne's letter and had come to see Elizabeth for himself, but he was kind of getting the lay of the land before he went to Mrs. Campbell. So it was serendipitous to meet Elizabeth in person at this home in Flying Cloud and then immediately nearly losing her. And so that convinces him to assume the care of his daughter. He tells her right there that she will come and live with him and she never has to return to her great-grandmother ever again. So Elizabeth is delighted. And all I can say, Reagan, is that this man better spend the rest of his days making up to Elizabeth for all that childhood neglect. Yes! Elizabeth is so starved for love that she will take this first hint of it that is offered to her. Mm -hmm. And she does not hold it against him for being gone all this time. But I am extremely angry with him. Same. It's so wild that a father can essentially just like abandon his child for a decade. And then when he does come home, it's to a hero's welcome. But we are very happy, of course, that little Elizabeth is at least escaping the grim evergreens for the rest of her life. Okay, as promised to Kelly and to our listeners for our Birch Path today, I am going to draw on some of my professional experience and we are going to talk about different parenting styles and philosophies. I'm a child and family therapist and I have actually taught lots of parenting classes. Reagan is literally a parenting and child development expert. Do not let her undersell herself. Share your wisdom with us. I'm going to use as our framework to kind of talk about it, this idea of the four basic parenting styles that have been developed from the work of Diana Baumrind. And I'm going to put the usual caveat here, which is this work, like most of the research, was developed using middle to upper class white Americans as the, quote, standard, which means it inherently does not take into account cultural differences. So these are some general ideas, but it comes with that inherent bias. This framework is generally accepted in most parenting arenas as a useful way to conceptualize parenting. I want you to have this visual, okay? So Kelly, if I don't describe it well, let me know. I want you to imagine a grid of four squares, two on the top, two on the bottom. The vertical line that goes up and down through the middle is, this is a sliding scale 
of control and demands. So the bottom of the line is very low control, very few demands. The top of the line is very high in control and demand. As you go farther up, the parent wants more and more control or has more and more control and has more and more demands on the child. Okay. Got it. Now, the horizontal line that divides the boxes the other way is also a sliding scale going from low affection and responsiveness on the left to high affection and responsiveness on the right. Okay, got it. So responsiveness means looking for clues in your child to how they specifically are doing. Ah. Okay. Not what they should be doing and then adapting to your child. An example of responsiveness would be, let's say, noticing that your child is scared while watching a movie and turning it off or taking them for a break for a moment, maybe asking if they want to watch it with the lights on or get a a stuffy or something like that. Even just checking in, like, are you cool with this. It might be asking your child if they understand your explanation or direction and then rephrasing it more simply or breaking it down into smaller chunks so that you're sure that they're getting it. Okay. Uh, I think I think I get it. So like responsiveness is kind of reacting to the kid that's in front of you as opposed to like what you think should be happening. Yes. All right. So we've got those four boxes. Okay. So there's the four basic types of parenting in each kind of quadrant. And of course, these are all scales. So in any of those quadrants, it's going to be more extreme on the farther ends of the boxes and more moderate towards the center, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a visual. So we're going to start in the top left box. And this style of parenting is very high in control and very low in warmth and responsiveness. So this is called authoritarian parenting. And this style of parenting would have been mostly prevalent in Victorian era white Canada. Mm -hmm. This type of parent is going to value obedience first, have high control of their kids. The parents are the boss. The kids follow the rules. And there are usually lots of rules. So this to me is sounding very children shall be seen but not heard. Yes, that parenting philosophy is smack in the middle of this box. So the parents are less likely to be highly responsive to their child. So the child should adapt to the rules and demands placed on them, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Parents are going to be more strict use punishment, sometimes physical punishment, but also other forms of punishment to deal with any misbehavior. There will be no questioning of the parents or of the rules. Mm -hmm. Parents are not particularly worried about whether their kids feel happy or feel connected to their parent. They're more concerned with behavior with appearances than with emotional state. So what we know about the outcomes for kids raised in this type of household is those kids may be more obedient as children, but as adults, they're more likely to have anxiety because they haven't practiced making mistakes or thinking for themselves. They're more likely to be insecure, to have fewer coping skills, to be less independent. And you can see why, because if you don't learn that making mistakes are okay, you don't develop into feeling confident in yourself or in making decisions, right? Right. And also, if you grow up in a household with a lot of rules and where following the rules is at the forefront, it becomes very easy to be like, okay, yes, I'll just follow all the rules. And then you actually get out into life and there are not that many rules. Right. Things are fuzzier. Things are mushier. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden it's a little like, well, do I follow this rule or this rule? Or one of the things that I think that I struggle with as an adult is very much the like, well, when there's no clearly prescribed path, what are we supposed to do? Yes. Now, if we think about Wendy Poplars, we can see that Mrs. Gibson is definitely an extreme example of authoritarian parenting. Her child is 45 and she's still- Poor Pauline. Brooks no dissent from Pauline. She shows zero warmth. 
She has no interest in Pauline as a person. And we talked about how Mrs. Gibson very much sees Pauline as an extension of herself. Yes. And Pauline's behavior and outward action all just reflects back on Mrs. Gibson. Yes. So there is no room to be interested in Pauline's individuality. Right. What Pauline wants, what Pauline might be experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth's great-grandmother, Mrs. Campbell, Mm -hmm. is obviously very much a fan of authoritarian parenting. She wants Elizabeth to be quiet, to be obedient, to make no noise, to have no opinions and no emotions. And we can see what that does to both Pauline and Elizabeth. And obviously those are extremes. Okay. So that's authoritarian parenting. So if you go down underneath it, Okay. So this quadrant is the uninvolved or neglectful parenting style. So they are low in affection and responsiveness, but they are also low in demands and control. Okay. They don't expect a lot from their kids and they don't really care either. So in the extreme, Mm -hmm. this is actual child neglect, but it could also just be emotional distance or disinterest in their child. They're not really paying attention to helping their child grow. They are not interested in their emotional experience. So this style is highly harmful to kids. And we know from the research, it leads to the worst outcomes of any kind of parenting style. The kids are more likely to have poor emotional control, more likely to have substance abuse issues, poor academic success, more impulsiveness, more likely to get in trouble, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. Nobody is helping you figure out what to do and nobody cares whether or not you do it. So why should you care about yourself or about your life, right? Right. Or sometimes kids in these households will become over-parental and start taking care of their parents or the other children in the home. They'll take on all the responsibility. So if you think about Anne's early years, they were definitely characterized by this kind of neglect. We can kind of put Elizabeth's dad in this category. You don't get more neglectful than abandoning your child for 10 years. Mm -hmm. But you can also think about the way that Catherine Brooke described her child experience. She was emotionally neglected by her parents. She says, they didn't want me to begin with. She knew from the very beginning that she was unloved. And then when she went to live with her aunt and uncle, they didn't want her either. Nobody really cared. It's no wonder that Catherine grew up to be angry and unsocial. Yeah, this is definitely the saddest box for me. Oh, it's deeply sad. So now we're going to move to the right. So this is the bottom right box. Okay. Okay. So this parent is the permissive indulgent parent. So we've got low. (laughs) I know who this one is. Right. We've got low (laughs) demands and control, but high in affection and responsiveness, mm-hmm. okay? So this parent is going to have no problem making their child feel loved and celebrated. They're high in warmth, but they aren't going to set a lot of demands or do a lot of disciplining. Okay, this feels like the right one. This yeah. feels like the good quadrant. <laughs> so these parents might have a hard time saying no to their child, holding a limit that makes their child unhappy, but they really want to connect with their child and they care about their emotional well-being. So what's interesting about this parenting style is that because it is high in responsiveness, in some ways it could work for some particular children and some particular families. It's going sure. to depend. Anytime you've got more warmth and affection, the outcomes are going to be better. But Sometimes kids who are parented in this way can have difficulty with impulse control or sticking with things that are difficult. It can lead to lower self-esteem when they encounter people outside their family that have standards or demands, right? Mm -hmm. They can be egocentric as adults because they aren't used to considering the needs of other people. So we can see that Mrs. Raymond, mother of Gerald and Geraldine, is 
practically the poster child for this parenting style on the extreme end. Sure. She believes that her children's happiness is paramount. She has difficulty with anything that might make her children feel disappointed or bad for a second. And perhaps she is so afraid of being someone like Mrs. Gibson, she's gone really far in the other direction. And therefore, she's providing no guidance for her kids at all. It feels good to be the person who is making your child happy. It feels good to get to say yes all the time. It feels great. It feels feels great great to be the fairy godmother and the wish granter. Again, this is why being an aunt is actually the best decision. (laughs) Right, right. Because it's like, (laughs) yes to the ice cream. Yes. Mm -hmm. You want to stay up late? Okay. Sure. Sure. If it makes you happy, great. And you see some of the ego involved for the parent there too, right? Like if the parent can't have their own like ego and sense of self challenged by their child, they will just sort of acquiesce to everything the kid wants. Right. And so with our demonic twins, you can see the negative ways that that can sometimes play out. And again, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Raymond is on the extreme end. So the twins don't feel like they have to listen to anyone else. No one gets to tell them what they do. They have no impulse control. They're absolutely shocked at being disciplined by Anne. You can also see that they are not thought of well in the community. People do not want to hang out with them. Other adults don't like them. Mrs. Raymond is getting isolated in the community. People don't want to help her because the kids are so out of control and she's not even interested in changing that. Yeah, she's really dug in like no one understands my kids. Exactly. But they do have a mother that loves them and delights in them. And they have a strong emotional bond with her and with each other that will hopefully serve them well as they get older. So maybe they'll mature out of it. Look, if these kids came into my office, I would definitely recommend more structure, consistency, and guidance that they would benefit from them. For kids, here's the hard thing I think that's hard for parents to understand, or adults maybe, is that as adults, we really value freedom, right? Like being able to choose what we want and do what we want. That feels good. That feels fulfilling. But for kids, too much freedom is actually kind of scary. Oh, sure. Because it's too big, not knowing where the limit is. As an adult, you've internalized limits. Yep. Like you, or hopefully, you know what your limit is. You know what the limits are in general, in terms of staying safe, in terms of needing to get stuff done in your life. Kids don't. They don't know that yet. That's not their fault. Their brains aren't done growing. They don't have the experience. And it can feel scary for them to have too much freedom. One thing that this makes me think of, and I know it's not a one-to-one comparison, but when we had with our puppies, when Uh they were little, we were really strict about crate training them. This is something my husband felt really serious about. And I felt so bad every time I put them in the crate, their sweet little puppy faces. I felt like they were in jail and their big eyes. And I was like, I just want to cuddle them. And they're so little and the puppy years don't last for that long and da 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 But my husband really stuck to his guns on this. And so we did it and we crate trained them. And Reagan, that is the single best thing we ever did for these dang dogs. Yeah. I mean, because they are high spirited, high energy dogs. They understand that when they're in their crates, that's their downtime. They're off duty. They can relax. You know, that has given us a world of peace in our house. Yes. Absolutely. They know what to expect and that feels safe to them, right? Mm -hmm. When I'm in my crate, I am safe. I can rest and they know what to expect. Kids like knowing what to expect. The younger they are, the safer that feels. This is kind of a different example, but it's related. It's why little kids like watching the same thing over and over again. Like the same oh my gosh. Of the show, right? right? That is such a crazy phenomenon with like toddlers where they were like, yes, I will watch another episode of Dora the Explorer or PJ uh-huh. Masks or whatever. I will watch the same thing over and over again for the rest of my life. Continuing to talk a little bit about the permissive indulgent parent, you could also put Mr. Armstrong and Teddy in this category, right? Mm. 
But like he's keeping him out of school. He's not really asking anything of Teddy except to just be lovable. Right. He's maybe not as extreme as Mrs. Raymond or Teddy's temperament just is a better fit. Teddy's kind of a chill kid. He's obviously very mild, very sweet. He's not out causing trouble and falling in ponds. And that's maybe just his own character. So he might do better in a home that is permissive indulgent because he's got his own internal limits. Right. Yeah, that's interesting, that contrast. The last quadrant is the top right box. Got it. So this is called not to be confusing, authoritative parenting. Why they didn't want to come up with a different name that sounded more distinct from authoritarian parenting, I don't know. They didn't Okay, so authoritative parenting. Got it. Right. All right, so these are parents who are higher in control, but also high in response and affection. So that's the big difference from authoritarian parents. They are going to have expectations and demands of their kids, but they're going to be tailored to their individual child and where that child is right now. Can I just say that this sounds like a ton of work, Reagan? Yes. This is like graduate level parenting, it seems to me, right? Like it seems like anyone can do the, certainly anyone can do the neglectful parent, unfortunately. But it also seems like the other two parenting styles we talked about are sort of like, okay, so you can set rules and expect that they're followed through on, or you can just be like all loving, totally permissive all the time. But to combine those two and make it suited exactly for the kid... That's actually a ton of work, it seems like, and a lot of intention and thought. Yes, this is very active parenting. Got it. Authoritative parenting, you are exactly right, is more work. This is why I liked teaching parenting classes, because yes, it's more work in the short term, but it works out so much better in the long term if when they're younger, you are consistent and you set boundaries, but you also listen to them and they feel heard and Mm -hmm. loved and safe. When they are older, they're more likely to listen to you. They were more likely to hear that feedback from you instead of just, I mean, they're still going to push back and they're still going to rebel, but you will have a base of connection that will let you work through a lot of the other things that are going to come up. So authoritative parents hopefully be in tune with what's age appropriate for their kids. What's age appropriate for a two-year-old is not the same as what's age appropriate for a six-year-old. They are going to be clear and consistent, but not inflexible. They'll provide consequences, but the consequences, the purpose is to guide and to teach rather than to punish. Mm, Okay, Okay, so this is kind of what I was reacting to earlier. Right, so the difference is if your child gets mad at their brother and clocks him on the head with the toy truck, right? Totally rational thing to do. Right, exactly. You have brothers, (laughs) you probably saw this, right? (laughs) So a consequence would be to be like, hey, that hurts your brother. You're not being safe with the truck. We're going to take the truck away. And when you calm down, I need you to repair this with your brother. Apologize. Bring him a toy to help him feel better right? We'll want to do something like, what do we want to do next time differently when you get mad at your brother? So all of that is teaching. You're still going to have to guide them. They're still going to be mad that you took the truck away, all of those types of things, right? Punishment is hitting the kid back, Mm. right? See how you like it. Yep. Or I'm so angry at you. I'm sending you to bed without supper. When the child comes to you to try and repair, you won't let them because you're still mad at them. Mm -hmm. The punishment is going to be disproportionate to the action. If the kid is four, three or four, their impulse control is not good. Their emotional regulation is not good. It was not okay that they hit their brother. 
We don't want to be permissive, indulgent and be like, oh, kids be kids. Right, right. Right. Because we want them to do something different in the future. That's not okay. But we also understand where they're coming from at their age. And we're going to be age appropriate with how we respond. Mm. Generally, parents ideally will start loosening control as kids grow up and can handle more independent. We want parents to be open to feedback from their child about what's working and what doesn't work. And predictably, this is the parenting style that is associated with the best outcomes for their child. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Kids need boundaries and they need their parents to think in the long term for them because they can't yet. But they also need their parents to make them feel loved and accepted for who they are to assess for their actual need, not just what should be happening. They need to adjust as kids grow and develop. Kids need to learn independence in small doses so they can practice making mistakes and learning consequences so they can build emotional regulation skills over time. Oh, yeah, that really hits home for me, actually. Right. These small steps to emotional regulation instead of being expected either to just be able to deal with everything that gets thrown your way right in the maybe authoritarian style or the neglectful style or not ever have to deal with anything in right. the permissive indulgent style. Yeah. So like. If we think about uh, Marilla's parenting, she starts out being more authoritarian in her strictness. Like think about the amethyst brooch incident. Even when it was clear that keeping Anne in her room was not working, she didn't adapt it. She stuck to it. She was like, this is what I have to do. I said I was going to do it, so I'm going to do it. But we noticed that after that, when the truth all came to light, Marilla led by example with apologizing. Authoritarian Mm -hmm. parents do not apologize because they're never wrong. Mm -hmm. And then she adjusted her parenting to account for what Anne actually needed. So then when Anne had the incident at school with Gilbert and was refusing to go back, Marilla checked herself about whether or not she should force her. She went and talked to Mrs. Lynn, got some feedback from an experienced parent, and decided to let her stay home until she was emotionally ready to return on her own. She thought about what Anne needed at that moment, and she did her best to try and do it. She wasn't indulging Anne. She wasn't being like, it doesn't matter. She was concerned, but she, considering her age and what she had been through, she was giving her a little bit of space to work it out. Yeah. And we see that Marilla really came to accept Anne for who she is. Mm-hmm. Initially, she thought she needed to stamp out all of that imagination and impulsiveness. <laughs> and eventually she came to really accept that and love that about Anne and modify it. Don't burn the house down because you're not paying attention to the oven. But she's also enjoys Anne for who she is. And she doesn't try to make her be someone different. And that's that responsiveness. That's that warmth. Anyway, so that was a long dissertation. Sorry, guys. Uh, (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was a really interesting break. The thing to always think about with all of this stuff is all of these are on sliding scales. They're not static states of being. There are authoritarian parents that are closer to moderate, still maybe on the strict side, but are showing warmth and affection. There are definitely going to be permissive indulgent parents that will still be able to set boundaries when they absolutely need to. Nobody flourishes neglected, but different kids are going to flourish in different parenting environments. And honestly, as somebody who teaches parenting and works with a lot of parents, I think the single biggest thing for parents to have is that responsiveness. You don't have to be an expert in child development to develop that responsiveness. That's the most important thing. Reagan, I think we should be charging for this podcast. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I really think that you have helped probably a ton of our listeners who are currently raising kids or at least given them some really valuable food for thought. I really appreciate the parenting deep dive, Reagan. 
<laughs> I am glad to help. And, you know, hopefully gave you some different context for thinking about parenting. All right, let's take a quick turn into puffed sleeves just to add a few little extra things we love that didn't fit in the main part of the episode. For me, one of my favorite moments with little Elizabeth is Anne's description of the map of fairyland that the two of them are drawing together. Anne writes to Gilbert and says, Last night, we located the house of the Witch of the Snow and drew a triple hill covered completely with wild cherry trees in bloom behind it. Of course, we have a tomorrow on the map located east of today and west of yesterday, and we have no end of times in fairyland. Springtime, long time, short time, new moon time, good night time, next time, but no last time, because that's too sad a time for fairyland. Old time, young time, because if there's an old time, there ought to be a young time too. Mountain time, because that has such a fascinating sound. Nighttime and daytime, but no bedtime or school time. Christmas time, no only time, because that is also too sad. But lost time, because it is so nice to find it. Some time, good time, fast time, slow time, half past kissing time, going home time, and time immemorial, which is one of the most beautiful phrases in the world. I just love that. I can almost imagine a clock with all those different times on it. I love it too. For me, though, my puff sleeve moment is going to be this really lovely little scene in the Armstrong chapters that is, I think, worth remembering. So Anne and Lewis find out that Teddy has died from a passing couple, Mr. and Mrs. Merrill. And then Mrs. Merrill says, I'm so sorry for that man. He's well to do. And I've always felt that he looked down on us because we were poor. But we have our boy. And it don't never matter how poor you are as long as you've got something to love. Oh, I love that line so much. Well, we are going to move along to our inspired by section. And after recounting all of these tales of inept parenting, I almost do want to recommend the book <laughs> Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. It's by Lindsay C. Gibson. And you know what? I think this is a good one for you. If your parents or caregivers did the best with the tools they had, but maybe their tools were not great. <laughs> yeah, that's a good recommendation. And my more fun, inspired by Anne, is going to be one of my favorite TV shows, Schitt's Creek. Part of me, Reagan, is honestly shocked that we've never discussed this other <laughs> timeless Canadian classic with the kindred spirits. It is truly one of my comfort watches. And the more time you spend with the Rose family as they try to figure out how to be a normal family after a life of excess, extreme wealth and privilege, the better it gets. Just watching the Roses become a family in sort of fits and starts is funny and fun. And if you haven't watched it, go watch it. And if you haven't watched it recently, it is time for a rewatch. I always love a story about a family that's grounded in love and growth. Yes. So for me, I'm going to recommend one of my favorite parenting podcasts, which is Mom and Dad Are Fighting from Slate Magazine. But I'm going to be more specific. I mean, listen to the podcast in general, but I want to be more specific and I want to recommend the episodes that came out between 2017 and 2019. There are current episodes that are still coming out, but the show has gone through various iterations of hosts. And in my personal opinion, the episodes that feature Carvel Wallace, Rebecca Lavoie, and Gabriel Roth are the best. The hosts do such an amazing job with not just answering reader letters, but talking about their own parenting, its joys and struggles and realities with profound care and thoughtful philosophy, not just answering like practical questions about nap times or how to get your kids to do their homework. I think I particularly learned a lot because two of the hosts had kids that were teens, so quite a bit older than my daughter at the time, but it gave me a glimpse into what lay ahead and 
they could speak from experience and they had a little distance from kind of that current age of of parenting that I was in to be able to speak with kind of a bigger context. I think there was something really special with the chemistry and the depth of the episodes that came out between 2017 and 2019. So I still go back and listen to some of those. I really miss those hosts. Oh, that sounds really great, Reagan. Okay, so that is it for us today. Thank you for hanging out with us on this episode of Kindred Spirits Book Club. For all things KSBC, we hope you'll join us over on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Or if you want to say hi over email, you can reach us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com. We are still giving away Kindred Spirits Book Club stickers. They feature our logo. They're absolutely gorgeous, high-quality decals that will look amazing on your water bottles or e-readers or laptops. And you can have one for free if you review our show on Apple Podcasts or if you share about us on Instagram or the social media of your choice. If you do either of those things, please screenshot it and send the screenshot to us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com along with your name and address. In return, we'll get you one of our logo stickers and our everlasting gratitude. Thank you again for listening. Take care, Kindred Spirits.